Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 983. We will actually be in Colossians 1 for the four Sundays of Advent as we prepare to celebrate together the the coming of our Redeemer, born on that first Christmas morning. We will be considering the, the goal and the nature and the source and the condition of our redemption in Christ as they are expressed to us in Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 23. However, this morning, as we prepare to ordain and install the seven men newly elected to the office of ruling elder, I want us to focus on verses 1 and 2. It might seem at first glance that these verses are are merely perfunctory. They are merely fulfilling the literary convention of the day. However, if you look at them more closely, I think you will see that these verses are truly profound, and that they have much to teach us about the ministry to which these newly elected elders have been called. And so let us go before God and pray that He would give us eyes to see and ears to hear His message for us this morning. Let us pray for His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the Word. Father God, we come before You humbly this morning, asking that as Your Word is read and as Your Word is preached, that your spirit would be here and be active, taking these words and applying them to our minds and our hearts, renewing us and transforming us to the praise of your glory. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the very word of God. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That is the reading of God's Word. As I said, in a sense, these words merely fulfill the literary convention of the day, Paul begins by introducing himself. He he does this in all his letters because that is how letters begin in the first century. People begin by identifying themselves, and if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. It, It seems obvious that a person would want to know who a letter is from before they read it. We still do this today. Do you not sort your mail, whether literal paper mail, if you still get that, or electronic mail, according to the sender? A note from a friend or a family member will probably be read right away, while an unsolicited note from some anonymous marketer might never be read at all. It might just be sent straight to the recycle bin. So if you are sending a letter and you want that letter to be read and not dismissed as unwanted junk, it makes sense to identify yourself at the outset. 
And this is exactly what Paul does. He, he begins simply with his name, Paul. But notice, he gives more than just his name. He also gives us his, his title or his, his position. He, he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And I don't want us to miss the significance of that introduction. An apostle is one who speaks on behalf of another with the authority of another. And thus, the, the word of an apostle is effectively the word of the sender. The apostle speaks with the authority of the one he represents. And so to be an apostle of Christ Jesus is to speak the words of Jesus with the, the authority of Jesus. Now during his earthly ministry, Jesus himself appointed 12 of his disciples to be apostles. There were, of course, more than 12 disciples. There were more than 12 followers. There were, there were more than 12 believers, but Jesus chose 12 to be apostles. He, he chose 12 to, to speak for him with his authority, to, to be the foundation upon which the church would be built. And at the end of his earthly ministry, he sent those 12 out to the ends of the earth with the familiar words of the, the great commission. But of course, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that, that Paul wasn't one of those 12. In fact, Paul was previously known as Saul of, of Tarsus, and Saul of Tarsus was not a disciple. In fact, you might say he was an anti-disciple. He was a persecutor of the church. But in his mysterious providence, Jesus chose Saul to be his apostle to the Gentiles. You may know the story. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. You can read it later this afternoon. Paul was on his way to Damascus. And he was going there to arrest Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. But he, he never made it. He, he never made it to Damascus because Jesus met him on the way. And there on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself appointed Saul to be an apostle. That is why Paul refers to himself as one untimely born. The other apostles were appointed during Jesus' earthly ministry. Saul was appointed after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He was an apostle untimely born. But the point is, he was still an apostle. He was appointed by Jesus Christ himself. He didn't volunteer. He didn't claim the title for himself. But rather, he was appointed by Jesus to be an apostle. He was an apostle by the will of God. And that means that his Words, the, the words of this letter and the other letters collected for us in the New Testament. His words are not merely the words of a man. But his words are the very 
words of God. As an apostle, he speaks and writes with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. That's why I don't use a a red-letter Bible. We we have these these Bibles that, that set aside the words of Jesus in red as if somehow they were different. But that's a misunderstanding of of the New Testament. I'm not telling you to throw away your red-letter Bibles, but you need to understand that all of the New Testament, all of the Scriptures written by the prophets of old and the, the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, all of the Scriptures are the very Word of God. They come to us in the authority of Jesus Christ Himself. Paul's letters are the very word of God. And this has obvious implications for the way that the Colossians should should receive and and read his letter. The Colossians are are not to receive this as just another letter from a friend. They're not even to receive it as a a letter from a a respected rabbi or, or teacher. They are to receive it as what it is. As God's very words for them. They are, they are to receive it as if Jesus himself were speaking, because he is. These are Jesus' words through his chosen instruments. To reject or ignore Paul's words would be equivalent to the Colossians rejecting or ignoring the very words of Christ himself. But of course, this is true not only for the Colossians. This is true also for us. Knowing that Paul is an apostle by the will of God is significant for us because it tells us how we must read and receive this letter. Now obviously, Colossians was not written directly to us. It was written, as Paul tells us, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He says this clearly in verse 2. And I know many of us stumble over that word saints there, but but remember, that is simply Paul's word. That's simply one of the ways that that Paul describes Christians. He's he's not using the word to, to describe the spiritually elite. This isn't written to a few select individuals in the church at Colossae. This is written to the, the church. This is written to all the believers because all the believers, according to Paul, are saints. They are holy ones. They are ones who have been set apart for God in Christ. And so this letter is written to them. It's, it's written to the church, the entire church, every member of the church at Colossae, not written directly to us. And this means that we, the the saints of Cleveland, must use wisdom to determine exactly how Paul's words apply to us. So, so for example, when Paul tells the Colossians to uh, receive Aristarchus at the end of the letter, that doesn't apply to us directly. Aristarchus isn't coming to visit us anytime soon. And so we must use wisdom to to know how to apply that instruction to ourselves. But but the command applies to us. It is still the word of God to his people. And it it tells us something about how we are to receive those who, who give their lives to ministering the gospel on the road away from home. It tells us something about how we are to relate to missionaries. But because Colossians was not 
directly written to us. We must use wisdom to determine how it applies. But that process of discernment must begin with the recognition that this letter is the very Word of God. And that means we discern how it applies, not whether it applies. We don't pick and choose which which parts of it we think are are fitting for our particular context. Yes, we, we have to apply it to our context, but we apply all of it because all of it is the very Word of God. This scripture written by Paul is our final authority in all questions of faith and practice. It is this Word that tells us what we must believe. It is this Word that tells us how we must live as disciples of Christ. Yes, we need wisdom. We need the Spirit at work enlightening our minds to to help us to understand how exactly to, to put it into practice in our particular context. But we put it all into practice. We we submit to all of it because all of it is the very word of God. It's what Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians when when he gives thanks to God that they received his words not as the mere words of a man, but as they really are, as the very words of God. So here we see that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, introduces himself with that title and with that position because he wants the Colossians and he wants us to know that he is writing with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. But of course this raises a question. If Paul writes as an apostle... If Paul writes with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, then why does he list Timothy as a co-signer of the letter? Look again at the end of of verse 1. Paul writes, And Timothy, our brother. Now it's unlikely that that Paul is listing Timothy as a a genuine co-author. It is generally agreed that that Paul is the author of the letters attributed to him. But nevertheless, he often includes the names of others in his introduction. He includes the name of of Silas or or all the brothers who are with me in his letter to the Galatians. How are we to understand these names? Why does Paul list these people alongside himself in the introduction? It seems that the best way to to understand this is to see that Paul is listing these people as co-signers. They are signing off. They They are giving their name and their affirmation to the content of the letter. But why would Paul need to list co-signers. We understand why people do this today. When when a group of pastors and teachers wrote what's known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, they they wanted to gather together as many co-signers as they could get. They wanted as many pastors and and teachers and professors as they could get to to sign this document. Why? Because they knew that, that Listing many, many pastors from many denominations and from many different generations, affirming their words, that that this actually increased the authority of their document. It said that their document was was a document worth listening to, a document that, that accurately represented the teachings of Scripture. But as an apostle, Paul doesn't need his authority to be enhanced. 
In fact, in his letter to the Galatians, he, he says explicitly that the approval of a man could not add anything to his authority. For he already speaks and writes with the authority of Christ himself. Why then list Timothy or, or anyone else as a co-signer? I believe that doing so actually serves two important pastoral purposes. First, by listing Timothy as a co-signer, it establishes Timothy's authority as a minister of the gospel in the minds of his readers. True, Timothy is not an apostle. Timothy was not appointed by Jesus to deliver the faith once for all to the saints. He is not the foundation upon which the church rests, Jesus being the cornerstone. But he is a minister of the gospel, and as such, he serves with real authority. He has authority to, to begin to answer some of those questions about how this applies in this particular context. He has authority to, to hold the people accountable to walking in the footsteps of faith in accord with the truth. And by listing Timothy as a co-signer, Paul the Apostle validates that authority. He, he points to Timothy as one who is authorized to serve the church as a minister of the apostolic gospel. He points to Timothy as, as one who can be trusted to preach and to teach in accord with that apostolic gospel. And I want to suggest to you that this has profound implications for what we will be doing here at the end of this service. In a few minutes, we will be ordaining seven men, or six men, and installing seven men, one's already ordained, uh, to the office of elder here at the church. And by ordaining them, we are doing something similar to what Paul is doing when he lists Timothy as a cosigner. As I said, Paul is not suggesting that, that Timothy is an apostle. But rather, he is suggesting that he is a minister of the gospel. He is one authorized by the church, by the apostles themselves, to teach and to preach the word of God and to, to minister it to the benefit of the saints at Colossae and elsewhere. And that's exactly what we are saying when we ordain these men to the office of elder. We are declaring that they have authority to interpret and apply God's word to God's people in this congregation. And therefore, just as Timothy had authority to lead and to rule as a minister of the gospel, under the authority of the gospel, so the men who are ordained to office this morning will have authority to lead and to rule under the authority of of the gospel. And the saints here at Trinity need to recognize this, just as the saints at Colossae needed to recognize the authority of Timothy. But not only does it serve to establish Timothy's authority in the minds of Paul's readers in the, the church at Colossae, I want to also suggest to you that it serves to establish Timothy's authority in his own mind. In his letter to Timothy, which are 1 and 2 Timothy in, in the New Testament, 
Paul seems to indicate that that Timothy struggled with self-confidence. He tended towards timidity and and fear. Now that may have been simply a function of his his personality, but, but it was also, at least in part, a function of the weight of the office to which he had been called. We know this because Paul himself says that he experienced something of that Timidity. Paul himself tells us in his second letter to the the Corinthians that he was painfully aware of his own insufficiency to serve as a minister of the gospel. And I know from my conversations with the men who will come before you later in this service that they have that same self-awareness. They know the weight of the work to which they have been called and they are painfully aware of their own insufficiency to do the job well in their own strength. And there is something right about that humility. But even alongside that humility, even alongside that that sense of insufficiency, there must also be a sense of competence. The competence that comes not from themselves, but from the spirit of the one who has called them. Paul understood that in order to lead the church well, Timothy needed to be assured of his own authority. Not that he might boldly lord it over his congregation following his own whims and desires, but that that he might exercise that authority for their good. And the men coming before you this morning to be ordained, they need that same assurance for that same reason. They need to know that they have been invested with authority in order to lead the church well under the authority of the gospel. So how did Paul assure Timothy of this authority? Well, one way was by listing him as a a co-signer of his letter. And I want to suggest to you that we will be doing the same thing this morning by ordaining these men to the office of elder. We are telling not only you, the congregation, but also them, that they have authority to do the work they have been given to do. They have authority to serve as ministers of the gospel in this congregation for the good of this congregation. And therefore, not only may they, but must they exercise that authority as ones called by God himself to do this work. This then brings us to our third and final point. We've seen that that Timothy was an authorized minister of the apostolic gospel. We've seen that that the Colossians were therefore under an obligation to to submit to that authority. And we have seen how this parallels the, the authority of those who are called to serve as ruling elders in this congregation. But now we need to be reminded that God gives us such men that God gives us elders, that he he gives us men with authority as gifts. They are given to us for our good because the gospel that they are sent to preach and to teach is that. 
It is gospel. It is good news. It is the good news of God's grace and peace in Christ. We we see this at the end of verse 2. How does Paul introduce his message to the Colossians? The same way he does in almost all his letters. He, He writes to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now some variation of that benediction appears at the beginning of almost all of Paul's letters. Why would he use that particular wording. I want to suggest to you that that he he begins his letters that way because it echoes the benediction given to Aaron, the first high priest of, of Israel. Paul's blessing echoes the blessing that God gave to his chosen people through his chosen priest recorded for us in in Numbers chapter 6. It's a it's a blessing that you've heard me use many times. It's a threefold blessing, actually. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Think about those three lines. The, the first line teaches us that, that as God's people, we have a twofold need. First, we need God's blessing. That is, we we need God to give us good things. Every good and perfect gift is, is from above. There is nothing that we can do to secure good things for ourselves apart from Him. We are completely and wholly dependent upon God's gifts. Even the life that we would use to secure blessings for ourselves is from Him. And therefore, we need, first of all, God's blessing. We we need Him to give us good things. But not only do we need Him to give us good things, we also need Him to protect us from bad things. There are all manner of things out there in this world that can harm us and can can keep us from, from the peace that God intends for His people. And we simply cannot protect ourselves against them. And so we are wholly dependent upon His gracious protection. In other words, we need both God's provision of good things and God's protection from bad things. It is only by the grace of His provision and protection that we are able to live. And that is exactly what is promised to the people of God in the first line of Aaron's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord provide for you and the Lord protect you. But the second and third lines describe for us where this blessing comes from and where it leads to. They they describe the source and the outcome of that blessing. Notice the first halves of the the second and third line are, are synonymous. For God to make His face shine upon you is equivalent to God lifting up His countenance upon you. That's that's not language we use often, but for God to lift His countenance upon you is for Him to to look upon you with favor, to look upon you in order to bless you. But the second half of each line is complementary rather than synonymous. The second half of the second line identifies the source of God's blessing. The the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord causes His face to shine upon you and be gracious 
to you. The second line identifies God's grace as the source of His provision and Protection. God's blessing is not given to us as, as wages earned, but rather it is given to us as a free gift of His grace. It is, it is a blessing of His unmerited favor. And the second half of the third line tells us where that favor leads. It, it points to the outcome of His grace. The outcome of His grace is peace. Peace or, or, or shalom. It's more than the the absence of hostility. It's it's more than the cessation of of conflict. It is the word for things as they are supposed to be. It is the word for, for things flourishing according to God's good design. And so this is the blessing that God gave to Aaron that Aaron might give it to his people. The promise of God's gracious provision and perfection uh, and protection leading to shalom, leading to true peace. That's the blessing that God gave to his people through his priest. And by opening his letter with a benediction that echoes that blessing, Paul reminds his readers that all the blessings of God's covenant promises are now theirs in Christ. All that was promised to Old Testament Israel now belongs to us in Christ. In Christ, God's perfect provision and protection belong to us, the people of God. In Christ, the grace that brings peace is now ours. In Christ, God's face shines upon us. Whatever pastoral instructions or rebuke might follow, they are addressed to God's people as the blessed people of God. And I sometimes wonder how different my life would be if I were more firmly established in that truth. When I reflect upon my own heart and my own mind, I have to acknowledge that I simply do not live each day fully assured of God's blessing. I am not always confident the maker of heaven and earth is is fully and unalterably resolved to bless and keep me. I am fully assured of, of neither His provision nor His protection. And the result is is coveting and anxiety, grumbling and and anger, fear and self-pity. And I suspect you know exactly what I'm talking about. I suspect each one of you knows what it is not to live in the full assurance of these things, but to live in a place of doubt. And I'm sure you know exactly how easily the weeds of the flesh grow in the soil of that doubt. How easily we begin to go our own way when we are less than assured of God's favor towards us in Christ. You know it. And if you know it, then you know exactly why we need elders. 
You know exactly why we need elders with the authority to minister the gospel to us. God gives them to us because we need them. God gives them to us as a gift that they might remind us and root us and establish us in this gospel. And he gives this to us a multitude of elders so that they can do it for one another as well. (laughs) Because none of them is sufficient on their own. They need to be ministered to. And there are many elders so that we might not only minister to you, but that we might minister to one another, that we might remind one another of these truths so that together we might be built up in this gospel, that together we might be strengthened and comforted by this gospel, that that together we might remember the gospel of God's perfect provision and protection in Christ. And so by ordaining them as elders this morning, we are not giving them authority to, to lord over us according to their own whims and wisdom, but rather we are giving them authority to lead us into the green pastures of God's grace and peace in Christ. Sometimes that will mean teaching and and comforting. And, because we are who we are, sometimes that will mean reproof and correction. But we must remember that whatever it means, whatever form it takes, whether whether teaching or, or correcting, whether comforting or reproving, if they are ministering to us the gospel, it always means blessing. And that is why we call the ordination of new elders good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you now thanking you for the gift of elders. Thanking you that You have seen fit to give us men to minister to us the gospel, that apostolic gospel delivered by men like Paul once for all to your church. Father, we do not pretend that we have apostles among us now. We do not pretend that the foundation is still being laid. But Father, by your grace, we ask that you might allow us to stand firm upon that gospel, to not be moved from that gospel, to put down deep roots into that gospel, and to grow up in that gospel, bringing forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. And Father, may the men who we ordain here this morning serve that very purpose in this congregation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.